The last year we moved to Rochester, Minnesota. Every time I walk around the hospital and they said, where, you know, where did you come from? I said, well, I, I moved here from California. And people look at me with a strange look like, is something wrong with you? <laughs> Should we, you move from California to here? I said, yes. And in the words of uh, my young son, it's like, yeah, we, we're just chilling. <laughs> but it's been a very good experience. And it's a place where I have come to become very keenly aware that people are hanging on to every single sentence that I say. In fact, sometimes they're writing it. Even when I don't think it's that important. Just because of the context in which we're meeting each other, obviously, you know how it is. They look at your profile and we live in a world today where people know how, we know how to market each other and make each other look probably uh, 10 times greater than what we really are, but at the end of the day, we're just clay and we're just humans, and sometimes that comes out. I had an interesting experience with, uh, with a gentleman who had traveled from Kentucky coming for a fairly major operation Saw him, got him to the operating room in the middle of the night, took care of him, saw him the next day, and then by the second day, you know, I'm rounding with the same chief resident, brilliant lady, wonderful. She's about four foot ten. And so finally, this guy couldn't hold it anymore. He looks at the two of us and he goes, well, when do I get to talk to the doctors at the Mayo Clinic? <laughs> you know, and, and Brielle and I looked at each other and said, I don't really think this guy thinks too highly of us. <laughs> but uh, I think the importance of what I'm starting to settle into is that health matters to people. And I don't say this lightly. Just like the enemy responded to God's challenge in the story of Job. He says, he's faithful to you, but I tell you what, just touch his health. Just interfere with his day-to-day. -day. Make him not feel well for a couple of days. And you see what he does. And all the more reason why I recognize the very crucial place that you are and that I am. That we can step in as God's instruments. Yes, clay. Yes, full of all the errors you can imagine. But yet God says, this is a job I'm not giving to angels. I am giving it to you. Whether you're a respiratory therapist, a social worker, a physician, 
or you're just a layperson who has taken the effort and the time to educate yourself on your health and be an instrument to help others live the same. You occupy a very, very important role. Nothing will open doors for the truth like evangelistic medical missionary work. This will find access to hearts and minds and will be the means of converting many to the truth. Boy, is that so real today. Think of how closed-minded we've all kind of just settled into our own realities, and it's becoming harder to pierce the noise with the gospel. But when you're sitting across the table from them, and they're thinking, you are here to relieve whatever ails me. What a privilege you have, and I have. Like the little girl in Amen's court to say, but there is a prophet. In our case, but there is a God. And I've had to use that phrase many times especially when I feel completely powerless to address their issues. They've bounced around five hospitals, complex problems, sadly often the effect of a life not well lived as far as caring for their health, and now you're sitting across the table with them not knowing if you're going to be able to salvage all the damage of many, many years of the wrong choices. All you could say is, but there is a God in heaven. So in this moments that we have together, I just wanted to go through a few things. To be able to understand what you and I are looking at, I thought it was very important to go back and look at the context at which this health message got developed. What was happening around the time? What was the circumstance that surrounded the delivering of the message? Why did God choose non-physicians, non-nurses to transmit a message about health? And in fact, he used heathens like you're going to be seen shortly, to set up the scene. And then coming down to what does that still mean for us today? Does the health message have relevance for us? In this era of highly technological delivery of medical care, is there room for a message that on the surface is seemingly so simplistic. Is there room for it? I was an intern on a mission trip in Brazil, and the patients would come and say something like, you know, I have this headache. Could you order me an MRI, please? 
And I'll ask, I said, how many do you want? <laughs> Is that still relevant for the health message? Let me dig back into history a little bit. Let me see, I think it's here. These two individuals on the screen, you look at their faces, well, what do they have in common? All right, on the surface, they are a couple of really very few men on this planet who've occupied the seat that they have. Yes, we all know that. Other thing they have in common is they have the two best doctors you can imagine in the world. There is a lot of interest in keeping them alive because their deaths destabilizes the whole society and even beyond. So their health care has to be really good. And the first president lays in bed only months after his retirement from the presidency at the tender age of 67, and he's dying and didn't know that at the time. He'd gone outside. You guys know the story very well. On horseback, rounding around his property. It was a rainy day, cold in Virginia. And um, this thing is very sensitive. Um, he came in, and as his custom was, he had to be punctual to everything he, he, he came to. He had dinner with guests that evening. He was late coming in, so he didn't change his clothes. He just came straight, sitting in damp clothes. And the short story was, by late that evening, he was complaining of fever. Two o'clock in the morning, he was having difficulty breathing. At 7.30 in the morning, he had his own dedicated bleeder. He had three physicians. 7.30 in the morning, he has his own personal bleeder, and they went and called for the bleeder, removed some blood, and here are the ingredients he took. Had some molasses, butter, and vinegar. How does that sound? Doesn't sound very appetizing. Still not feeling good. By 9 o'clock, his doctors already showed up, one of them. And they did some blistering, essentially apply some hot uh, compounds to the neck. The idea was to counteract the inflammation on the inside, you have to apply something to the outside to essentially remove those humors that were causing the, um, the difficulty breathing and inflammation. We all now know, chances I probably had epiglottitis. And again, bled some more. 11 o'clock, the second doctor shows up and says, gentlemen, we got some work to do. You haven't done enough yet. Um, all right, is that? Thank you very much. And then the story goes, by the end of the day, he had been bled 
more than 40% of his blood volume. When I was preparing this talk, a month ago, my daughter had a chance to read some of this stuff off my desk, and he goes, why would somebody do that? <laughs> Tell me what the reasoning is. And these were doctors. I said, well, that happens. Um, the enemy has a way of blinding us, and um, it's easy to follow what everybody else before you is already doing. The idea then was, if you had a fever, your body was reacting too potently, and the way to calm your fever down or, or lessen your reaction to whatever was causing you to have a fever is to reduce your body's potency. At least that was the, that was the pathophysiology, if you want to call it that, uh, back in the day. And, but that was medicine. That was cutting-edge medicine. And you and, you and I know by 10.30 in the evening uh, of the following day, he had died. To understand what was being done then in medical practice, you have to go back and look at some of the... Uh, this is uh, one of the most detailed documents of actual patient encounters in what you and I might call today an HNP or a discharge summary, so to speak, of a patient. And um, Dr. Robert was a surgeon, a physician from Edinburgh, who had carefully documented over 200 of these. And they've made it 200 patient encounters, and they made it to this time. Let me just draw your attention. I put this on the slide just so I can uh, draw your attention to some of the medicines that were, in, that were given in those days. So, nicotine given, um, Halop, which was a cathartic drug. This is a plant that grows in the Sierras in Mexico. Cream of tartar, high in potassium. But this, this story, particularly of patient Johnson that he documents, caught my attention. So after Digitalis was given, the last sentence there was really what caught my attention. I dismissed him much relieved, but with little prospect of being ultimately cured. It is sad, but it's an honest admission. Do you feel like that someday in your practice? You've done everything you can, and you release them. There's not much really you can do. That really saddened me. Um, Professor William Thompson wrote a book. He taught at New York City College for many years. And um, in this book, he gives us the Dan, what would be the pharmacology textbook, pretty much. Medicines were categorized in these categories you can see here, and I just took a sample. There were the emetics, and those contained morphine-type products, zinc sulfate. There were the diuretics, and those have mercury, turpentine. There were medicines that contained cocaine. And how about some, a little bit of cyanide? But this was cutting-edge medicine. This is how medicine was practiced in the 1800s, late 1700s, early 1800s. 
In fact, most physician and even non-physician sitting in this room will know first do no harm. The counter to that in that era based on the therapies known then was anceps melius remedium quam nullum. A doubtful remedy is better than nothing. How would you like that? Take a little cyanide. We don't really know what it's going to do, but just take it. <laughs> Let's see what happens. <laughs> yes. But this is how the people of God were living under those circumstances. Before you should condemn, know that these guys were essentially flying without instruments. We had no labs. There were no imaging modalities. There was no pathology. There was really nothing to guide what you were going to do, and it's hard to know what you're going to expect. You do the best you can with what you were given with what was then cutting-edge medicine. So this is the time when God said, it is time for me to step in and introduce an alternative to this kind of living for my children. And not only for the Adventist church, but it was meant, still meant, for the entire world. And that's what you and I sit on. That's very important. Just so you, you know, just so I give you a little context again, these were the things that were happening around that era. So it was long after that that we knew of blood groups. It was around that time that the primitive form of anesthesia was, um, was uh, tried. X-rays around that same time by Röntgen and Dr. Sidney Ringer first talked about lactated ringers roughly around that same time. So these were very difficult times experimenting with things and we did not know what was going to happen. The interesting thing was the way in which God went about revealing his plan, the dependence on him and natural remedies didn't come in a way that you and I will expect. This passage caught my attention. This is from Desire of Ages, page 36. Satan was seeking to shut out from men a knowledge of God, to turn their attention from the temple of God, and to establish almost holy success, and to establish his own kingdom. I'm sorry. His strife for supremacy had seemed to be almost wholly successful. It is true that in every generation, God has his agencies. But take this, even among the heathen, there were men through whom Christ was working to uplift the people from their sin and degradation. How can that be? God using people who didn't know who he was to uplift humanity. late 1700s, early 1800s. 
Vincent Prisnitz, Austrian, born in the little town of Grafenberg, now known as Jesunik. It's now part of uh, the Czech Republic, uh, no longer under the Austrian uh, uh, territory. A farmer, if the stories are true, at age 13, he sprained his leg. He pulled himself to a place where a well was running, cool water, stuck his foot under the water, started feeling relief, pain, inflammation got better. In fact, when he got tired of sitting there and letting the water run on, over his foot, he thought about getting wet compressors with that same water and putting it on. At age 16, he was chasing some a mule that was tethered to a cart and the mule and the cart slammed into him, multiple rib fractures. During that time, rib fractures were a fatal disease. Your ribs are broken, chances are you will have a pneumonia, chances are you will succumb to your illness. He documents how he was able to use that experience when he was younger. Just water, and I, I will add on to that, by the grace of God, was able to make it through. But this put into play something that was not thought about by the medical community, that indeed water can have some healing properties when used and applied in the right settings and in the right way. In fact, he went on to establish what we now know as hydrotherapy clinics throughout Europe, that invited kings and dukes to come and get relief from multiple things. Obviously, when something like this is happening, or you imagine there would be a lot of criticism, the medical community then heavily criticized a lot of what he was doing, largely because he did not come through their ranks. About the same time, Dr. William Wright, Scottish physician who happened to join the military and was stationed in Jamaica. The story has it that he was traveling back to Edinburgh from Jamaica and uh, Many people, including himself, on the ship fell sick of typhoid. Well, the treatment then was what he tried. Gentle vomit. He took some concoction made out of tamarind. Took some opiates. Some wine. And the idea was to, if you had a fever, the thought was to not keep you exposed to the elements because it was considered to be bad. The more he did that, the worse he felt. He finally, out of desperation, staggered out to the deck, laid out on the deck, and the cold breeze of the sea started blowing on him. 30 minutes later, he realized he's feeling better. 
went in, had a fever again. He repeated the same exercise. Came out, cool air, fever relieved, felt better. The third time this happened, he actually asked the sailors to get cold water and pour it on him while he was laying on the deck. People who saw him do that and copy that, here was a real-life experiment. Those who stayed enclosed, over 80% of them died. The ones that made it out to open air and used the, the water, a good majority of them survived. Real-life experience on a boat happening at that time. Hard to imagine God at work. But I tend to believe he's at work, even in the minds of heathens who do not know who he was. We have a lot within our healthcare message that traces back to Dr. Jackson. Dr. Jackson started out as a farmer. He eventually went to medical school and got a degree, lived in New York, in Donsville. Frustrated with the therapies that I just outlined to you, decided to reach out for more natural remedies. To his surprise, they actually worked well with patients that otherwise would not respond to conventional treatments. In his later life, went on to establish a sanitarium in Dunsville. And when I was reading up on this, I didn't know where Dunsville was. Um, that's the sanitarium. That's Dunsville right there, close to the border with Canada. Among other things, maybe every time you enjoy a bowl of granola, maybe we should think about him. Because he was, he's credited as being the first person to put together an assorted cereal that he called granula. I will come back to him in just a minute. In addition to everything else I've mentioned to you, lots of things were going on in the world at that time. Temperance societies established in the U.S., encouraging people to be sober and quit alcohol. Vegetarian society in the United Kingdom established, encouraging citizens to depend more on plant products for their diet as opposed to animal products. Sanitation movements, very crucial in cutting down infectious disease, especially in overcrowded big cities, London, New York, San Francisco. These were all happening in society, in my humble opinion, in response to a voice of the Holy Spirit that some of the people leading those movements were probably not even aware of. 
the gospel and the health message are inseparable. God could have just been content making sure that we're all healthy, we have good blood pressures, we sleep well at night, we don't have diabetes, we don't smoke, and just live great lives. But to what end? To what end? And this is where you and I stand at an advantage over the person that doesn't know Christ. Because we know the why. Not only do we know how, but we know why. And just like anything else we do in life, without a higher purpose guiding us, it will soon become a boring routine. Inject into your life, into your career, into your studies, a purpose that goes beyond you, beyond your daily needs, and there will not be one boring day in your experience. Even though we don't deal with some of the major crises of that era, a lot of the things still have not changed very much. U.S. Institute for Health Metrics, I got this graph from them. We're dying of the same reasons that we died many years ago for. And one common link in that list that you see, these are all related to personal choices we, ch we make regarding our health on a daily basis. What we eat, what we wear, what we listen to, where we go, the things we associate ourselves with, what we think upon, all these are related. And this has not changed. And unfortunately, the only change there is the proportion of people that are dying from this just keeps getting larger and larger. Not only is it increasing in proportion, but the cost of taking care of it is also getting larger and larger. Think about it this way. So in 2050, for every individual in this country, obviously this is splitting it all up, some will spend less, some will spend more. But we all we will need roughly $17,000 a year just to care for us collectively as a society. One other way to look at this is that if the message that you and I are sitting on was to catch on in the world, in 50 years, you will be sending a check to every single individual in the amount of $17,000. You think they will like it? Then come our message. Sorry, wrong direction. This humble couple, you're very familiar with them. At around the same time, God was trying to reveal to Sister White 
the full tenets of the health message. Remember, these are not, these are not people with degrees behind their names. These are just simple people that have fully surrendered their lives to God. They were going through their own personal challenges. In 1862, there was a breakout, outbreak of uh, diphtheria. Two of their children in their household got the disease. And Elder James White remembered that he had read in a newspaper an article about natural remedies from, yes, you guessed it, J.C. Jackson. Non-Adventist, but Christian. When he was, when they were trying to take care of their children sick at home, he remembered this article, went back to it, read it, applied it, and these two youngsters in the home got better from diphtheria. He was so convinced of it that he published it in the Adventist literature because he wanted everybody to know about it. And here's an extract. Review and Herald, February 17th, 1863. Diphtheria is making dreadful ravages in our land. It is a much dreaded disease because physicians so often fail to cure it. It can be cured by the simple prescription of Dr. Jackson found in the following article. It is important that the fact should be known. I think that same Holy Spirit at work in the world was working now with people of the Advent movement who know God clearer than the people of the world. I know critics have looked upon this and said, well, you know, they just got everything they wrote and passed down to us from Dr. Jackson's um, sanitarium. I don't think so. I firmly believe that the Holy Spirit, knowing that here was a group of people fully surrendered and who have a better understanding of salvation, they can better appreciate what health and the health message really meant. Because they understand the great controversy. They know what a mind and a body that is sound can do in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Where you and I can hold uninterrupted communication with the very God of the universe and understand fully his purposes for our life. That will be a force that is unstoppable. And Satan knows that and will do everything in his power to confuse that or interrupt that flow. They struggled just like people in their era. When I read this statement in uh, Spiritual Gifts, Volume 4, Chapter 40, the story behind this, and I'm going to try to summarize it for you in the interest of time. The oldest son got sick. They trusted physicians. And I'm not advocating here that you should not trust your doctors. 
but this is, remember, the context in which I'm providing this in. They gave all the medicines. The son passed away. And now, Henry was sick. They decided, as you can see in what I highlighted there, that we would not send for a physician, but do the best we could with him, ourselves, by the use of water, and entreat the Lord on behalf of the child. We call in a few who had faith to unite their prayers with ours. We had a sweet assurance of God's presence and blessing. And bear with me, I know this is very lengthy, but I thought I should share this with you. I dreamt that an experienced physician, this is after they went into a season of prayer. They've been up for four nights in a row caring for this little boy. They're exhausted. They finally hand him off to a trusted family member who was keeping watch over him at night. Sister White drifts off to sleep. And the next thing, I dreamt that an experienced physician was standing by my child, watching every breath with one hand over his heart and with the other feeling his pulse. You and I know who that is. That is the creator himself. Every time I've read this, I thought to myself, what an assurance when you hold that patient's hand and say, I am doing the best I can, but I'm going to trust you into the hands of somebody who is mightier than I am. What an assurance that provides. He said to her, the crisis has passed. He has seen his worst night. He will now come up speedily, for he has not the, injur the injurious influence of drugs to recover from. Nature has nobly done her work to rid the system of impurities. I related to him my, my worn-out condition, my pressure for breath, and the relief obtained my, by opening the door, she, uh, said he. That which gave you relief will also relieve your child. He needs air. You have kept him too warm. The heated air coming from a stove is injurious, and were it not for the air coming in at the crevices of the window, something else would have happened. You can read the rest. The point I wanted to make with this was here was a group of people, dedicated Adventist pioneers, who themselves were struggling with the same matters that confront you and I today with health. Don't have the opportunity you and I have to be schooled and learned. They trusted wholly in the physician of the highest caliber in what he had to provide. This is not a talk to run through the Adventist message, a health message. It's a very long presentation of what to do that. You and I will be here probably all day and still talk about it. But I wanted to summarize nine points that I thought the message, the Adventist health message, spoke to me. 
that man was created in the image of God. And that your physical condition is directly connected to your spirituality. Without a healthy body, you cannot comprehend the deep things of God. And that in our lifestyles, we shall seek to maintain our bodies in accordance with God's design. We heard in the presentation this morning by Dr. Walsh, Christianity should not be checked out at the restaurant. Your faith should not be checked out at the airport. At the music store. Because that's precisely what God designed for your well-being. Do not check it out. God wants you to treasure it. It is a message handed over to you in love. Point number four, that God requires obedience to these principles, not as a means of salvation, but as an acknowledgement of our dependence upon him. He has promised, Exodus 15, 26, I will heal your diseases. That is as real as the sun that's shining outside today. I will make it happen. Oh, you don't know many times I've been in the operating room bewildered myself. And I'm putting things together completely not, sh- not sure how this is going to turn out. And when you see them walking through the doors of the clinic, relieved. They're relieved, and I am relieved. Because I knew this is not my hands. I knew for clarity that this is God's healing restored to them. Only I know the challenges that go on in my heart and in my mind as you struggle with those kinds of tough situations. Natural remedies are heaven's preferred way of providing health. And I'll leave that point at that. So I say, well, you know, what if modern science will leave that argument for another day? It's God's preferred way. Has he blessed knowledge to a point where we can use modern medicine to relieve suffering? Absolutely. I believe in that. Otherwise, I would not be doing what I'm doing. But his preferred way, obviously, is for you never to have gotten to that place in the first place. But if you did, he also wants you to learn the principles of health and teach them that Christians will strive for abstinence, meaning you and I are not going to be content with halfway measures, that we will seek every day to make sure that we are living out these principles. 
because the God that we serve requires these principles to be lived out in our daily lives. That the diet given to us from Eden is still relevant for us today. Yes, there are many factories that make very good things that we all enjoy to eat. But what God designed for you from Eden has not been surpassed. Even after all these years, 6,000 years later, mankind could still benefit from God's original plan from Eden. That the support of both individuals, your individual support and collective support is required. As you and I interact today, I hope if nothing else, that you can get up from here and say, it's time to go into action. That this is not a spectator sport. If God says do this, he means it. Not a suggestion. He's looking up to you and I to be able to do that. And in the process of carrying out that duty, he expects us to exercise tact, patience, and above all love. Sometimes that's where I think I struggle with, and sometimes maybe you find yourself just doing the same. Well, why can't they just do, I'm just going to spell out one, two, three, and I expect them to just do it and just... And that's it. Oh, why are they eating this way? Why are they not eating this way? Understanding that when you're dealing with people who have never heard the truth, whose taste buds, whose whole beings have been bent in one direction, oh, what a monumental challenge to try to sway them onto the other side. I've heard it presented once that when Christ says to his disciples, greater things than this you will do, this is after the miracles were done, um, part of what he meant was you'd be involved in the task of convincing hearts and minds. I've never seen a job so difficult than doing that. We have three children at home. Convincing them of something against their thought process. You know, parents in this audience know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been through that. Let alone the stranger who you do not know. And so God requires you and I to exercise tact. And again, my summary of the message the last phase of, this is just my summary, as I said, I try to narrow this down to nine bullets just so it makes it easier for you and I to have this conversation today. Things that you should be looking for, that she lists in the collective body of documents that we now came to know as our health message, both the one given at Otsego in 1863 and then the Christmas message in 1865 is what I've been trying to summarize for you. Overwork and insufficient rest, not good for you. 
physicians in the room and nurses and healthcare workers, driven people, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That's something that we ought to watch for. Taking in foods and substances that are clearly harmful. Abusing our bodies, organs, especially the GI tract. Overeating, eating in between meals. And she lists all these things one by one. Not availing ourselves of the natural remedies. Some of us, you know, we like sleep. We like healthful diet and then exercise. Well, you know, that's a little harder. And um, God is encouraging all of us to pick up his strength and be able to participate in that. Lack of exercise, improper posture. Those are some of the things that um, she was worried about. It was this message that led to our first efforts at creating an institution in the hopes that it served as a sanctuary where people who were struggling with all kinds of ailments will come to and get relief. Battle Creek Sanitarium, lots of sacrifice. I won't go through the history of how that was created. Healthcare, still relevant, and will become the dominant topic of our conversation for most likely most of our generation and perhaps even the generation that's coming after us right now. It's expensive. It's difficult. What a timely moment for you and I to step in with the message. We're not exempt from this conflict. To fold our arms and retire just because it's hard. Just because we disagree. Just because we approach things from a different angle is not an option. This is the right message. And this is the right time. And you are the right hand of advancing that message. What we see in our society today, all the more reason calls for men and women of your caliber. And I'm not talking of your degrees and your, and your certificates. The struggle we see around us is a struggle for truth. Who do I trust? Who do I believe? It's dawning on us that titles and degrees and certificates don't equate to truth anymore, sadly. And God says, I want to raise up a people. A people who will satisfy this greatest need that the world has. The need for people that are true in their innermost core. People that their only interest is to see the salvation of others and theirs. The reason the white coat was designed to be white, to be worn by people like you and I in our profession, white in Latin was candida. It means candid. But actually it means beyond that. It means when I put that coat on, I am coming to you completely divested of my own interests. I don't have any interest 
of my own in this conversation that we're having right now. What a relief it will be when they seek you and they find you and they know that you are that kind of individual who will be candid. Because in your inmost soul, you believe in a God from above. And so my simple message is that of action. I was talking to a colleague this morning who said, you know, the need is so great, I don't know what to do sometimes. And I feel that way sometimes too. There's so many things to do, so many places to go. So much, I mean, you could, you don't know where to start. Well, start where you are, with that one person. Start small. Maybe you may not be able to go to places like this and do things like this. This is stretching me out of my comfort zone. I'm not an orthopedic surgeon. This lady here has had a big tumor in the brain and in, in growing over the skull for most of her adult life. They thought she had a horn and she was a witch. You don't have an MRI, you don't have a CT scan, you don't know if it's growing into a skull, you don't know anything. All you have is prayer and trust that God will carry you through. You start where you are, you start with what you have. I hope this time together has served you. I hope when these days that we're going to spend together in this conference are done, you can get out and say, this is God calling me, and this is the right time. I think the last, the last slide didn't make it through. As we've already been exhorted, there will not be a generation after this. If you're waiting for the next set of people to do this work, then we're sitting in the wrong place. God has blessed you. And what I've tried to lay out, lay out for you was the miraculous way in which God has step-by-step step guided us to where we are today. And we possess something that the world is desperately in need of. Thank you very much for your time. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.